Welcome to the Farmers I Know podcast. I'm Carolyn Hershon. This is a very special episode. I started the Farmers I Know to speak directly to farmers about their stories to convey the ways in which they are leaders in environmental and social justice movements. Sustainable agriculture sounds pretty niche at first, but the more you dig deeper, you realize how many different issues intersect with the food system and the push towards making them more sustainable. It's a lot to unpack. To help me do this, every fourth episode I'm focusing on one key intersecting issue and talking to a variety of people to help me examine it. Today is all about land. For the most part, land is a silent and dependable part of our daily lives. Unless you spend your days cultivating the earth, you probably don't think too much about what's going on beneath your feet. I spoke with six people across the United States that work in a variety of different fields, but they all think about this topic more than the average person. This episode features brother Eric Jackson, the director of the Black Yield Institute, Kayla and Kando, the dynamic duo behind the interactive podcast Farm Plug, Holly Ripon Butler, the director of the land campaign with the National Young Farmers Coalition, Eric Cassetta, the soil science technician at the Land Institute, and Dr. Maria Lawrence, an indigenous studies professor from Rhode Island College. Right now, I'm recording this podcast on Piscataway land. Many of my guests began our conversations with a land acknowledgement. Together, we're occupying at least 20 different indigenous territories. Here's indigenous professor Dr. Maria Lawrence giving her land acknowledgement and talking about why this is important. I am currently in the homelands and sacred territories of the Nahagansit, the Mashantake Pequot, the Eastern Pequot, along with uh, the Niantic. And I do this land acknowledgement because it's not only appropriate, but it raises the awareness that we are on um, indigenous lands and that the indigenous people maintain these lands and maintain these organisms and kept these spaces and these waters for thousands of years, the benefit of everyone. I just wanted to add that she also said Mohican, but the audio broke up. I started off these conversations by asking everyone what word comes to mind when they think of the word land. Earth, plants, reciprocity, support, uh, water, mother earth, and spirit. Vital, I think, is really one of the key words. Power, I guess, is another good word. Relationships, opportunity. Diverse and place-based. Life, growth, vastness. That last voice was Eric Jackson, speaking from Baltimore, Maryland. His work at the Black Yield Institute focuses on self-determination through Black land and food sovereignty. From my understanding of your work at the Black Yield Institute, you all seem very intentional about your word choice. And I want to unpack a couple of these key terms for the audience. For example, I think a lot of them have probably heard of this term, uh, like a food desert. And rather than use food desert, you all often use the term food apartheid at the Black Yield Institute. Could you talk a little bit about the distinction between these terms and like why you use the language that you do, why that's important to you? Sure. So our intentionality around the language that we use is part of sovereignty or part of being able to control one's own destiny and engage in the world as a self-determined people, it's about really choosing to use language that are reflective of our realities rather than 
reflective of uh, mainstream ideas that are presented to us and I think often impede our abilities and right to talk about our own experiences. And so equally important to our Black Land and Food Sovereignty work is how we talk about ourselves and how we at the same time denounce how other people talk about us and our experiences because what people are sovereign if you can't use your own language, if you can't use your own terms in your own terms, right? So yeah. that is for us critically important. So now with that as a basic understanding of how we approach the world, it should be clear that we not only denounce the language that's given to us by public institutions, academics, and the overall mainstream of talking about the uh, symptoms of inequities within food systems and food environments. We've been given the language of food deserts and we denounce it, but also at the same time utilize it so that we can start where people are. If people understand the world or understand one aspect of the world as communities living in so-called food deserts, then we start there with the understanding that we're looking to transgress or to move toward a place of understanding the full breadth of the issues. And we believe that a term like food apartheid is a little more complete in terms of understanding the power dynamics and the political underpinning of the inequities that the language food desert attempts to communicate. Right. So food apartheid seeks to go deeper and understand the complexities, historic and contemporary dynamics of communities that produce the conditions that the language food desert or healthy food priority areas attempt to communicate. And so food apartheid really is about understanding the political dynamics, historically so, that come from the omnipresent phenomenon of white supremacy. Food apartheid is the food and land manifestation or materialization of white supremacy. It happens in communities that are largely black and brown. It happens in communities that are largely poor or so-called low income if you are a politically correct person, I'm not. <laughs> it is one that does not, the language itself of food apartheid does not uh, hitch itself on the idea of the presence of a grocery store because that in and of itself is problematic. Mm -hmm. Many peoples around the world are not getting food from grocery stores. It's about local markets. It's about subsistence farmers and other commercial farmers who bring to the market and people get their wares from those marketplaces and supporting local economies. And so to even base a definition off of that speaks to a commitment to uh, corporate control capitalism within local communities. Food apartheid seeks to say no, that corporate control food environments are actually a part of the problems. We're not gonna actually define it based on that or anchor it based on that. And also just thinking about the complexity, spiritual, physical, uh, psychological and emotional impacts of those conditions. So having uh, limited access to healthy, affordable and culturally appropriate food is just one aspect of it. 
but the impacts uh, really speak to uh, predatory marketing that lead to diet-related issues like diabetes and hypertension and cancers and other issues that are largely, again, associated with white supremacy. But the big thing is about people not being able to and people's human rights being impeded upon uh, as it relates to what food is available in one's community and not being able to, to decide that. So we're talking about people's self-determination being destroyed. And so the so-called American dream suggests that people, Americans, citizens, whether it's through generations, uh, generational assertion, or through terms related to nationalization or you know, post-immigration, the ability for you to decide in your own community what you wanna see. Amazing, thank you for such a thoughtful answer. And yeah, it has to do a lot with the images that are coming up through the language that you're using, right? Like a food desert sort of being this term that's very like accidental. Like when you think of a desert, it's something that happens naturally, right? And that's not what's going on. There's a push towards keeping the status quo because people are making money off of it. And food apartheid kind of addresses that intention around it like no this isn't an accident this is this just doesn't like fall into place the way it is you know what i mean absolutely it was it's intentional and created and codified over time i became aware of the black yield institute through an online discussion i attended about a report that they launched looking at ways communities could collectively own land and what land reparations could look like in the city of baltimore I want to talk about this community control of land, um, this report that you launched in March in collaboration with the Farm Alliance of Baltimore and the findings of this report. Sure. So the way that it came to be, this uh, community control of land, the people's demand for land reparations in Baltimore City is the uh, title and subtitle of the report. And so the idea was, uh, came, it was birthed out of some conversations between myself and executive director of Farm Alliance of Baltimore around this idea of engaging our community on what we wanted to see happen. Because we knew that if there was a chance, any resemblance of a chance or modicum of sovereignty or food sovereignty that was gonna exist in Baltimore City, it had to be something that we did, and it had to be something that was, when I say we, the community at large, and it had to be something that needed to be, uh, policy had to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And so we began this process of engaging community through several community conversations and asked essentially if this is something that folks want to engage in. And if folks wanted to engage in it, we would then open up space for us to expand the conversation from the 50 or so folks on the first call, the preliminary call, I like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so our report actually reports out what the people say that we want and the ways in which the processes that we could enact and the policies that already exist that we could build upon or new ones to create that would allow us to have some modicum of reparations around land that expand not only urban agriculture, but other uses of land that are essential to the goals of the people. And so whether that be housing, addressing blight or what have you, but we learned through the process that the city 
of Baltimore has an extensive inventory of property and unoccupied land that's not being used for anything that largely is being um, wasted, really. Uh, and the potential is being wasted in community when it could just enter into community control so that the land could be in relationship to community in ways that we decide that we want. Very cool. What sort of things, like when you did those teach-ins, I know you had people from like Oakland and from all over, um, like what sort of things did they have success around? Like what were some of their like, or if were there any, were there some cool successes, success stories of like people um, gaining community access to land? For sure. Um, I mean, namely, so we had, uh, as you talked about, several locales or several organizers and activists representing different areas around the country who shared with us. And I think one of the examples that I would uplift is, well, two of them. One in Detroit is a urban agriculture or food policy in Detroit that helped to create the food policy council that allowed for some of the work that different organizations benefited from, but that was largely stewarded by and initiated by Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Mm -hmm. And it allowed for space for various organizations, but especially Black organizations to really like have access to city and state owned uh, land for the ability to grow food for residents, and, you know, in the city of Detroit. And that was a, a great thing to learn and relearn because we're uh, Black Yield Institute is in a larger network of um, Black organizations doing uh, liberation work around food and land across the country. So we knew that, but to be, really be able to see that as a policy win, uh, that a Black organization literally wrote the food policy for the city of Detroit was a great thing to learn. And then in Philadelphia, Soil Generation, a uh, largely Black and Brown coalition of urban uh, agriculturalists, urban growers, and community organizers worked with the local government to get land into the hands of community groups and organizations for the purpose of growing food. Those are two examples that we learned from and that I recognize, at least for me, and we didn't talk about this, and it's really only coming up for me after those teachings, and this is actually the first place that I've said it publicly, that these are examples that we learned that were not about making larger policy change, but then essentially working with politicians to then gift land um, and enact programs that would help with that. But we know that that's not enough. Baltimore has its own. I mean, we have stuff like uh, or programs like Homegrown Baltimore, which is a little new uh, that come out of the uh, Baltimore sustainability plan of 2019 or something like that. And even before that, uh, some other policies that are there in terms of, you know, land trusts or land preservation, as well as um, uh, what is it called? The program uh, Adopt a Lot. But those things don't get to what we want to see. It doesn't get to community control. We have largely short term leases that further create insecurities on land for 
uh, urban farmers and community groups and organizations that have been stewarding land for a long time and it sees urban agriculture and community use of land as a temporary uh, use for land rather than a permanent and larger use. And that's what we're moving toward. And we don't have any examples here in Baltimore and in the teachings of showing long-term reparations, not only using the language, but being able to put city-owned land, quote unquote, into some kind of trust or into some kind of process where community can control what happens that is a part of a larger network that feeds our city and that uh, provide economic opportunity. And that's what we're hoping to do. Then there's precedent across the country and around the world for some of that, mm-hmm. but we're hoping to do something that uh, builds off of those precedent, the precedent from our comrades in other places, but also in examples like in Boston or in uh, Evanston um, or in uh, Cuba, you know, um, examples that show state issued land into the holdings of community for the purpose of urban agriculture as a long-term use. That there's not a bunch of precedent there, but we want to be able to learn from all of those different examples including some other federal policy in like Zimbabwe and uh, in South Africa, where land is, is then uh, turned into, you know, the um, hands of the people who, who originally had the land before imperialism. Um, we're trying to just build off of those and figure out what we can do in Baltimore in ways that allow for people on the, commu- on the ground, people in community to actually you know, have more control as we talked about and what happens in our community around what food is available. And I think that this is just one step toward that. And uh, we've made some concessions since the report came out. We've had continued to have public meetings with community, um, meetings with public agency heads and uh, with um, uh, some politicians that we're looking forward to expand more. But uh, there's more organizing to be done to get where we want to get. So, and where we want to get is you know, more land in control of community for the purpose of moving towards sovereignty. And anything less than land reparations is not enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like the time duration that you that you touched on is is such an important part, especially when you're talking about like land stewardship that's something that's so gradual and like over time, like the reciprocity that exists between people and the land isn't something that can just happen in a six month lease, right? Like that's something that's developed over years. And I feel like a lot of times, I don't know if this has happened this way, but I would fear that with like more like short-term leases and just letting people sort of, you know, borrow the land to do a lot of that stuff. I don't know how much people would feel like investing in that. And I would fear that something like that, like an experiment might even be used to say like, oh, well, we, you know, gave you this land and, you know, nothing was done with it or something like that. It's like, well, people don't really want to invest in land that's just going to be taken away from them. Why would they want to do that? You know what I mean? So I feel like that time of feeling real ownership, people will, you know, come around to that idea a lot easier than just like, all right, let's see what we can do with this for six months. And then after that, you know, they're going to take it back or build a development. Like that doesn't feel good. People don't want to 
invest their time and their emotions in a piece of land that they just feel like at any moment could be gone. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that really is the premise, right? So it's like the city hasn't seen urban agriculture as a, uh, as a permanent use on land that already exists. And because it is reflective in the policies that are enacted, right? And again, not just urban agriculture, but specifically community-based and community-centered approaches to addressing food apartheid. Uh, a lot of the approaches to addressing food issues in our city is uh, relegated to, um, or are, sorry, relegated to um, outsourcing, right? So it's like, how do we bring grocery stores in? How do we bring, you know, uh, you know, job um, creating entities into our city to address, you know, the local food issue or hyper local, you know, hyper food issue, hyper local food issue. I think that those are, I mean, that's the that's a problematic way of seeing, and it's no reason for city government to show security because there is no precedent. There, there hasn't been enough moving the needle to show good faith in people to find solutions to our own problems. Problems that we haven't created, right. to be clear, but problems that we are committed to addressing. And on the side of the people, there is no reason to invest if it's going to be snatched, right? And that's been, there is more precedent where uh, people have adopted, if you will, um, stewardship of land, whether through formal or informal means, and then the city gives it up for developers to come develop on. Why would you do that, right? And so there are special folks, urban growers, farmers, community associations, um, grandmother on the street, you know, uh, community group churches who said, you know what, we're going to go past that and still end up getting burned, you know, by like putting a lot of time and uh, investment in and then get land snatched from under them. Um, but I commend the people who continue to do it regardless of that and taking the risk and making the financial investments. But now is the time for city to do that in terms of putting its mouth where, you know, it's uh, sorry, it's um, dollars, it's money where its mouth is and putting its, uh, its mouth and its consciousness on the side of the people. And we want to be able to utilize this process to give guidance to the representatives, the elected officials and public agencies on what we need to do in um, the 21st century to show what it looks like to have community owned and controlled processes that feed us good food, culturally appropriate food that's available and that build a network of people and organizations that work alongside public agencies, hopefully to um, make some change in our city that shows uh, good faith, again, in the people to uh, decide for ourselves what we want to see rather than having other people do it for us. That is, that day is over. That day is over. We're, we're not going to have that. I also had the opportunity to talk to the women behind the interactive podcast called Farm Plug. I asked them about their own personal relationship with the land and if they owned or had access to some. This is Kayla. So the straight answer is, Technically, no, I, I don't own land, um, but um, there's land my family personally, um, and I'm trying to get, whether you want to say ownership over it or control or be able to 
to cultivate and be creative on that piece of land. Uh, and it's, it's a long and burdensome process. I know for me personally, um, people can't see me, so, so you don't know, but I am a Black American. You know, I'm a descendant of enslaved individuals, um, individuals who were kidnapped and stolen from their country and forced to, to work the land, you know, talking about land. So my relationship to land it's complicated and it is, it's dressed in that history and in, in that inheritance um, and, and in the battles that my ancestors fought, you know, with the land. Um, so, so my history personally, you know, I have some of that land, a piece of land in Texas that has been passed down through, through my family, but it, it is not owned by me um, and it's not titled or deed to me or, um, you know, anyone directly because of, what people may know as heirs properties or inheritance property. And it's, that's the type of property that's passed down um, through someone who owned the land and who didn't have a will. So they passed away without a will or without a deed declaring who is the rightful owner. And so throughout years or generations, that land, the ownership of that land increases because all the inheritance or all the heirs have title or they have ownership to that land. For people that don't know the history of heirs property, it's played a pretty big part in why in the 1920s, black families owned about 14% of farmland and today it's dropped down to less than 2%. Basically, landowners who died in the early 20th century often left their property to family members in informal ways. And over time, the land kept getting passed on, but with the original landowners still on the deed. So trying to prove ownership gets harder and harder over time. It can take years, it can be expensive, and with no guarantee of success. So that's something that's happened in my family. And I think at this point, one piece of land is probably 25 to 50 inheritance that are, uh, have, have title to that. And not everyone's interested in, but you know, it's gonna be a process. Figure out who all is interested and figure out how it's the best way to main, go forward. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not a pro and I, I don't know all the answers and it's, it's been a learning process, but um, that's, that's some of my relationship with the land. Kendall, what about you? You got a little land in Chicago, and if you did, what would you do with it? So I actually, this is such an interesting question, and I don't want this to come off like a big flex, but like I have so much access to land. It's like what to do with it all. You know what I'm saying? And it's a, it's a really a blessing um, to have the opportunity, right? And when I say I have access to, like in Chicago, for example, I'm a part of, uh, I, I work with a nonprofit and um, Urban Growers Collective. And it, it is just that, it's a collective, right? And the collective in total has, in the within the city of Chicago, we farm across, I, I wanna say 18 acres. Um, like Kayla said, a lot of people's relationships with land has been, you know, tumultuous, but, um, you know, when I was growing up, my grandfather owned his home and the lot next to his home. And he built uh, like aquaponic systems before we were talking about aquaponics. He had koi fish and tilapia and catfish in there. And he was, you know what I'm saying? He was growing his own strawberries and like, like he, and he was a sharecropper from Arkansas, right? So um, I've always had access to space. Um, and that is a blessing that I know a lot of people have not um been blessed to be able to encounter or to have. And then, you know, my mother, my family owned a couple buildings on the South Side, right? So 
Um, that's one of the projects that I'm also working on right now is we have a farm plug concept store that's about to be unfolding within the next year or two. And um, it's really utilizing that space. We've partnered with um, John Carlos, the Olympian who raised his fist in the um, 1968 Olympics. We partnered with him to do like movement and stuff like that. Um, and you know what I'm saying? That's just like, it's, it's all these different opportunities that have been coming up. And now that I'm old enough, I can, I can, I can use them, but I can just go crazy with my imagination, right? All of these times where I'm asking questions like, well, why can't things be like this? Or why can't my people have the room? Or why can't we engage in this way? Now I have the space to, and, the, and almost the time, I don't really have the time yet, but I'm definitely uh, laying out some plans to be able to make that my full-time uh, efforts. For a little context, these are two women I came to know through our master's degree program. They have not one master's, but two, and Kando is earning her PhD from Tuskegee University. They host an interactive podcast called Farm Plug, where the first 10 people to log on to the conversation actually get to participate in the podcast discussion. It's such a unique and enriching experience, and you can hear these discussions on Spotify. Anyways, our discussion took on the very idea of land ownership as a concept, and why it's a little strange. And this idea came up in almost all of these conversations. Here's Kayla again. Just the idea of ownership in of itself can be a really complex notion, you know? Um, definitely as we live in Western capitalist society, where there's you know, definitely a strong definition of what ownership looks like, but if you want to look at indigenous or collective ways of ownership, you know, there's other ways to, to own land. This idea of commodification of land also came up in my discussion with Holly Ripon Butler, the land campaign director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Yeah, I think the word commodification can be wonky and it's like a big word and what does it even mean? But in my mind, it's really just the difference between are we treating land as a community resource that we all rely on and need to grow food? Or are we treating it as a, a thing that somebody can own and make money off of? And um, I think that's what commodification means to me anyways. And it's such an important point because we have a choice in the policies that we're making um, to, to say how we want our resources to be used. And there's a lot of precedent for this. And um, there's, you know, we're, we're making policies all the time that are trying to protect our natural resources or control how they're used. And I think that that has really been lacking when it comes to land for growing food. We really um, have this a dominant kind of mentality uh, in policymaking and in narratives around land about private land ownership and the that that's integrally tied to our conception of you know who we are as american citizens as like on a broad scale and in the kind of popular narrative and um i think that that's really damaging and that's kind of something we want to draw attention to that that is at the core and is something that we need to start pushing on and shifting. And so many people have and are, and it's really just picking up on a long, um, a long line of activists and people who have for generations been pushing back against this commodification and um, in both their policy activism, as well as just in how they're creating the structures on the ground to do this. And, um, such as community land trusts, you know, came 
out of the out of the black community with new communities in in Georgia and um, this idea that private land ownership does not have to be the be all and all's answer to how we to how we have secure access to land um, and I think you know we know that indigenous communities also have had such a long history of land stewardship that doesn't rely on individual ownership. And so I think we wanna really highlight that in our advocacy, policy advocacy work and say, how can we shift policies uh, to incentivize opportunities for people to, to own land that don't rely on that, um, that individual family farm or private individual owning the land. This concept also came up in my discussion with Dr. Maria Lawrence. Yeah, land is um, a personal identity um, and ownership always raises a lot of, um, I don't know, conflict in some ways. None of us really own the land. Uh, it's not possible in some ways. Obviously, there's the political legal interpretations that come through um, different uh, structures. But I define myself by my land. To say that I am La Nape means that I am from Le Nape Hokan or Hokang, right? Which is the land of the original people. All indigenous people in some way define themselves by land and or water. Land offers us so much. Our lives literally depend on its gifts, but also it provides us with joy and awe and gives us peaceful spaces. I just want to have a space that's my own and where I can be in nature. And, you know, I'm one, one of my connections to nature and to land is recreation. And so whether that's putting up a hammock, that's, you know, running around on the land with your family or building a bonfire, just that ability to be at peace with the land, um, that's big for me. So to have that um, and to create something that I could, you know, share with my family, that'd be really important to me and valuable. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing all that. I really, I rarely think about recreation, but that's so valid, right? Like just being able to be in nature yeah. and play, you know, like that's valid. I think for me, it's a big thing is one, of course, I love recreation. That's kind of how I came into the, into the environmental realm, but also two, as black people, as black women, you know, being in nature, is somewhat of luxury. I kind of touched on it when I talk about, you know, the complicated relationship that our ancestors and black individuals have had with land and how so much has been out of pain and out of force um, work and just torture, just, you know, and sometimes we can relate that pain and that history to land and country itself. So I've met a lot of people who have negative relationships with the environment or they don't feel comfortable with the environment or they don't feel comfortable being out in the country, you know, out in the cut. So I like one thing that I want to do moving forward and I've always wanted to do is just change that narrative. It is so vitally important that everyone has access to this space because it's like this huge classroom that has so much to teach us at every age. As an educator, Dr. Lawrence believes land is an incredibly important tool for her curriculum. You know, unless, unless you're still going to be in those physical spaces, you're cheating yourself out of knowledge. And as an educator, I know that I can't 
teach abstract concepts. I need students to be in physical spaces, right? I need students to be able to look closely at a leaf and compare it to another leaf <laughs> that's actually there, <laughs> right? That's so great. I love that interactive teaching style. Yes, you have to because you know they may you can use the sense just of vision, but you lose the capacity to feel the texture, mm -hmm. to notice things about the difference in smell. There are yeah, what organisms are drawn to that leaf versus the other leaf? What does that tell us about the environment we're in? All of those things are basic biology, mm -hmm. and um, those are the the types of things that I rely on to teach science. So what are we doing to give back to the earth and make sure we're not taking too much and that our interactions with the land are done with care and gratitude? The Land Institute is doing research to find out how we can farm in ways that are more sustainable. I spoke with Eric Cassetta, who's a soil science technician there. So from my understanding of the Land Institute and what you all do there, it seems like one of your main focuses is switching from more industrial ag to more sustainable methods that sort of mimic what's going on in the environment. And it seems like you've identified these two sort of core ways in which you do that, which is switching to perennial grains and seeds and also polyculture. And I'd love if you could explain those two things and why that's such a big deal at the Land Institute. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are working on breeding uh, perennial grains. Uh, grains were chosen because they are a staple crop that, that really feeds the world. And I mean, if you drive past any of the, the large silos here, you can just see mounds of, of corn and wheat just with tarps over them in, in huge piles. And you can't do that with, you know, cucumbers or bell peppers or, you know, it's a storable staple crop that provides a lot of calories for everybody. And that's what feeds the majority of the world now. And could you tell me what a perennial is? How is it different than any other type of grain? Yeah, so uh, perennials are plants that persist more than two years. So you have annuals, biannuals, and perennials. So right now we're tilling the soils a lot and planting annuals and um, perennials some of the reasons why they or the, they have the potential to be a lot more beneficial for row agriculture is because they allocate so much more resources to uh, below ground biomass. So their huge root systems can scavenge for nutrients better. So they don't need to be fertilized, potentially don't need to be fertilized as heavily. And they don't need as much watering if they can tap down into the water table. Like some of our crops uh, roots go down three meters into the soil. So they can really access an entirely different media for that. And during large rain events or passes with the tractor, uh, you don't end up with a, as much erosion because it's locked in there with roots all year long. Cool. So there's even a connection from perennials to not just, you know, how often you're tilling the land, but it's also keeping it in place because of its roots and how deep they can grow. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Cool. And during the summertime, you get a lot of growth. Uh, and then during the wintertime, the plants cut back because they don't need to be maintaining all of that living biomass. So you end up with root die off 
And as those roots die off and get consumed via microbes, some of that carbon, of course, is respirated off via the um, microbes eating it, but then some is being put away in that soil. So that's some of the carbon sequestration that we're looking for as well. What draws you to soil? Like, why is it important? Why do you care about it? And why should other people care about it? It's, it's not just like a substrate that plants grow in or something you walk on, or I've heard people say soil is, is in the ground and dirt is what's underneath your fingernails. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, it's, it's integral into all of agriculture. That's, that's where the nutrients come from for the food that, that the plants provide for us. And, and it's, it almost feels like a mysterious aspect to it too, because it's so, I mean, you only get to see just the top, you get to see the crust of the, of the pie, you never really diving in, but with different soil cores and things, you can take these and and really look at them in, in a totally different light. I love that. And I guess I never thought of it like that, but it's kind of similar as the ocean, right? Like we're sort of just like looking at the surface, but there's this entire world going on underneath. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I talked to a, I talked to a farmer recently and he told me that topsoil was the number one pollutant in our waterways, which I never heard before. And I've been hearing a lot about this and I heard at an event recently, I think yesterday that we only have a certain amount of topsoil left. Are we at risk of losing our topsoil? How much, is, I guess I have a bunch of questions about that. How, how much dirt or soil would you consider being topsoil? Are we at risk of losing this? So yeah, that's, that's one of the big pushes for uh, having these perennials because then you are holding that soil in place. And in some places, You've lost it entirely, like uh, some places in Palestine and uh, where there has been agriculture going on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. The hillsides uh, are all washed away and they used to be, you know, oak forests and pistachio forests. Yeah, and we really are at risk and, and it varies how much topsoil is there to lose and, and where it's a problem and where it's not. If you're looking in Iowa, like they have an incredible amount of topsoil. But uh, the, I mean, what preceded these soils that are so rich for growing was these grasslands. And they, they, they essentially did on a huge scale what we're talking about with uh, some of our grains of having that root die off and contributing that, that carbon to the soil. So when you hear people reference black gold, that's like when they were first tilling the prairies and the, the soil was just so rich and so black that um, it it had so much carbon and so much nutrient availability there. That's why we could grow so much in such a small area. That's awesome. And like you were saying how when you do lose a topsoil, what, what is it even called under topsoil? Like if you lose, say we lost all the topsoil, what, what, what would we be left with? Once again, that varies per, per where you are, but it's the, the parent material or the, because the topsoil is minerals mixed with organic material and where the roots can tap into. Below that, you have like the calcium that's leached out down into this layer and the, like the, the parent rock material that hasn't broken down yet or needs weathering to then break down into something that looks more like soil. 
Mm. And how long would it take us to to get it back? Yeah. Uh, well, it's not a renewable resource in in human times. So uh, it's crucial that we yeah we can't get it back. We're covering a lot of ground between reimagining how we access land as a community, thinking through how we use land in our relationship to it, and the environmental impacts of all this. It's a lot to process, and even harder to figure out how to create change. One important tool for change in all this is through policy. The National Young Farmers Coalition does just that. I think of them as a liaison between people and politicians. They make it easier to access information on policy, and they do the work to highlight the voices of real people that policy impacts. A recent example is their land report. I spoke with one of the authors of this report, Holly Ripon Butler, who's their land campaign director. We um, started working on this idea and it felt incredibly overwhelming at first. It was like, okay, we are going to articulate all of the challenges related to land. We're going to explain the history. We're going to make the case for the need for policy change. We're going to tell farmer stories. We're going to collect all the policy ideas that are out there. We're going to talk to partners. And it was a big, it felt like a big project, but it was an incredible opportunity to get to really dive into the issues, to interview uh, lots of brilliant people around the country who are working on this issue. Um, and those interviews really shaped the report uh, and truly helped build the narrative. Um, I, I think the, you know, the key ideas of the report were not really preset. I think I understood the challenges that I had been hearing for years from farmers, but those interviews really helped uh, helped shape the narrative. So I really see the report hopefully as just a, a collection um, and a, you know, a channeling of, of the, and building on the amazing work that, that so many other thinkers and farmers and activists are doing around this topic. So yeah, we did. Uh, I I did a number of interviews with folks, and um, we also wanted to make sure that farmer case studies were part of it and that their stories were told. So we were working um, alongside writing the report narrative, on also um, having this program with nine young farmers and ranchers around the country who um, we. Were, they were resourced to participate in the program. We um, paid them a stipend and gave them training on talking to the press and advocacy training. And so they had some access to, to those resources and connections. And the idea was that we would tell their, we would tell their stories um, as part of the report project and then also um, connect them with the press to tell their, tell their own stories and kind of amplify the challenges that they're facing. Um, so that's, a, that's what we've been working on and we published it all as a website. So our website has the report on it um, and also the farmer case studies, which will be growing, we'll continue to add stories. And we also built a policy library there that we'll continue to add to. Um, so hopefully it can be um, a very interactive resource and um, we've got other narrative pieces and resources and. Kind of for anyone who really wants to dive into the land issue, it's all there. Yes, and it's wonderful. I loved it. Thank you. The biggest piece of legislation that impacts food and farming in the U.S. is the Farm Bill. It's like a big package of a bunch of policies that gets renegotiated and reauthorized every five years. 
It impacts the food we eat, the farmers that grow it, and the land that it's grown on. I asked Kando what she would like to see in the next farm bill. Oh, in the next farm bill, there are a couple of things I would like to see. Um, so for one, there's a new center on rural on rural life, right, and outreach, and that's the Alcorn Policy Center. I would like to see them get um, a large chunk of that funding, right, to do some research on rural communities and specifically rural Black communities because um, not just in the Southeast, but even like in Illinois, one of the largest Black farming settlements north of the Mason-Dixon is right outside Chicago, Illinois. And the work that they've been, that they do and have been doing, you can see in the actual landscape, right? So this is actually a, like a, a biodiversity hotspot in the Midwest and where the Black people are who farm in Pembroke, that's the name of the community. Pembroke has trees, they, they practice permaculture, but they're literally surrounded by um, big, big agriculture, monocrop, monos, monocrops and things like that. So, you know, when Black people get land and when we get the support that we need and rightfully deserve to manage our land, it's not just good for uh, the Black community. It's really good for everybody because the way that we engage, and when I say Black, I mean Black, Indigenous. Um, I ain't gonna say all people of color because all skin folk ain't kill folks. I don't really know about all that. But, um, you know, uh, People who give reverence to the earth and have done that traditionally, the way that they farm is ecologically friendly and it, it's regenerative and it's what we need. And so I would like to also see some form of uh, support for not only black farmers, but for the institutions that have always done the work to support those black farmers. So the 1890 institutions and Tuskegee University. Um, I would love to see them get a big chunk um, through the centers of excellence to further different programs that they have, expand programs that they have. Um, because when those black farmers, the few black farmers that we do have, when they have questions and they need help, they have to lean on cooperative extension. And I think to be able to support cooperative extension, which exists within the 1890 land grant institutions, which most of the majority are HBCUs, right? The 19 HBCUs um, and land black, black land colleges. Um, that is where our black farmers go for that support, that help. Um, the research that we do at our 1890 institutions is people-centered, is people-oriented, um, is focused on what our local farmers need. So I would love to see some of that policy in there. I would love to see, and I guess I don't, I don't want to monopolize it all, but definitely um, some also big funding for urban agriculture, right? Um, and a shout out again to Urban Growers Collective and um, Green Era, right, which is a new organization in the city of Chicago that has partnered with Urban Growers Collective, and they're going to be doing an anaerobic biodigester on the south side of Chicago, and this is like a 60 million, this is a multi-million dollar project being invested in the black south side of Chicago, which is a historically uh, lower and under-resourced community, right, and so when we see those type of investments in our urban centers that connect people not only to the earth and to agriculture, but also exposes people to newer technologies, more sustainable energy. Now we're chipping away at, you know, at greenhouse gases, at climate change, which we know that our communities are going to bear a majority of the brunt of. So um, in a nutshell, <laughs> those are the things that I would like to see um, more, more. I would love to see support for the Alcorn Policy Center. I'd love to see more support specifically in the form of matching funds for the 1890 institutions. And then I would also love to see um, more support for urban agriculture and what we think of urban, being real about how we think of urban, not just inner city, but the people in the inner city that we're often talking about and making sure that they get to benefit from that, those opportunities. There's definitely a lot of room for improvement, but everyone I talk to has hope around creating societies that value and connect with the land.
Yeah, uh, I definitely have a lot of hope in this moment. I feel like there are so many long-standing efforts to draw attention to the issue around land and land access that are really gaining some momentum and public visibility. And so I, I'm really hopeful that there's real energy between on the ground activism and projects that have been leading the way for so long and the opportunity for big picture change, uh, especially with the um, 2023 farm bill coming up. This is really the last thing I'll say. Yeah. Imagination is a critical process within our liberation movement. All movements have to have as a part of its tactics, imagining the world that you want to see. And that is a part of what we teach in our political education work. Imagination is critical. In fact, one of the uh, most um, prevalent and foundational ways that white supremacy um, chips at the humanity of all people is by impacting people's imagination. And so one of the biggest things that we can do to combat it is to undo the idea that I'm only supposed to be in a certain position. I can only understand the world in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I can only uh, see the world in a certain way um, is the first step to actually like just undoing that and moving toward accepting that imagination is the way to be. Just imagine, imagine and practice that. That is praxis. How do we reflect on the world and understand the world? How do we act upon the world and then reflect about our action and then act on those reflections and then write the continuous dance of reflection yeah. and action? That is praxis. And a part, a big part of that is imagining something. And I also believe that that is the uh, spiritual vocation of human beings and all things that have the breath of, of life. Um, our, that is our, our vocation as creators. You have to see it, then you can be it. If you can't see it, it can't happen. Oh, my hope for the future is that um, the communication, the cross-cultural communication uh, persist. We have things still to learn from each other. The landscape is changing um, due to climate change and not that climate change is a new thing, but the reasons for it, the cause and the response, right? That uh, we're all responsible for how we respond to that. And that's going to be a collective effort. I'm hopeful um, because there are young people who have figured this out <laughs> and are working towards it. And I'm very excited about their energy and their creativity. Um, and I think their willingness to try a variety of things that they're willing to leave everything on the table. Um, so it really speaks to creative and, you know, a lot of ingenuity um, going, going forward that I think is very positive. Um, so I think that's what I would say, that um, I'm, I'm hopeful, right, that, that the effort uh, continues and we learn to listen with good listening ears um, for everybody. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope it's given you a new perspective on the power and potential of relationships and opportunities that land offers. I encourage you to check out everyone you heard on this episode and learn more about the work they're doing. Join the Farmers I Know community through rating, subscribing, and following along on Instagram at the Farmers I Know. 